you so very much, Akeem and the team. If you all have your Bibles, please open to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 50 today as we finish off our series on the life of Joseph. It is a story and a journey of reconciliation uh, that we have gone through in these past few weeks. Last week, Thomas brought us through the critical moment, that moment of confrontation that leads to a moment of reconciliation. In Genesis 45, we see there's at all, all at one moment a sudden revealing of the truth that Joseph is uh, alive, that he is that governor uh, that holds his brother's hands, uh, oh, sorry, holds his brother's life in his hands. And in that moment, Joseph forgives them and absolves them of what they have done. And he frees them from that uh, guilt and shame. And if you were to end the narrative right then and there, it might look like a, uh, a, picture, uh, a perfect picture ending to a movie, right? The brothers find out that all of what they have done has been forgiven. They find out their brother is alive. They can go back and grab their father. And it would be like most movies we watch in this world. What do I mean by that? Most media depicts what I like to uh, call uh, quick fix reconciliation. Quick fix reconciliation, and it's not their fault. Movies only run for about two to three hours. But within that span, there's a buildup of conflict. There's issues and relationships, and somehow there's this full resolution, and you get a very sweet ending at the end, right? Just think about, say, the movie Die Hard, right? There's a guy going to this mo uh, party, and his wife is estranged from him and wants to leave him. And within that next two and a half hours, he does some heroics. Uh, he gets rid of some terrorists, and he has her affection back at the end of it all. Quick fix, right? Or what about Aladdin? You know, uh, Jasmine's angry at Aladdin for, you know, being deceptive, and he just takes her on this magic carpet ride, and then suddenly all is forgiven. <laughs> and she figures out it's him, and all is forgiven. What a, what a great ride. Uh, one of my favorites as an anime fan, we have this term called talk no jutsu. And what it means is that when there's a really bad villain, they're trying to resolve things, the protagonist can just go and say some really profound things, and suddenly the villain turns his ways around and there's reconciliation. All of a sudden, forget all the baggage of the past. Within one conversation, he solves the world's problems. We are used to living in a world filled with quick fix encounters. But we all know in our own personal lives that's really not the case, right? Relationships are messy, and one encounter typically does not resolve all the issues that we have with another person moving forward. You see, when we read through chapters 46 and 49, it seems like all is well. In chapter 46, uh, <clears throat> uh, Jacob is reunited with Joseph, and he, he's just, he breaks down crying to be reunited with his son, and it's a beautiful picture, right? And then in Genesis 47, Joseph intercedes for his brothers, gets them some of the best land in Egypt, and now they are set for life. And not just the brothers in their generation, but all of their children are set for life. Imagine if your siblings set you up with a, you know, seven-figure paying job, right? And you can pass it on to your children. That's a pretty nice setup. That's what they got. Right? Best land in the area, their kids are set to flourish. Wow, really looking really good right now. <coughs> Chapter 48, there's the blessing of Joseph's children. To be fair, uh, we see a little bit of conflict brewing in there, a favoritism of the younger son over the older. And then in chapter 49, blessings and actually really curses for Jacob's sons. And once again, it shows a little bit of the tension, but all in all, it seems to be a very happy ending and then you get to chapter 50, where we're reading today. Today, what we're going to see is that reconciliation is more than an encounter or a, uh, a, a confrontation. When you think of reconciliation, you think of one major issue, and it's keeping us from being reconciled to each other. And we think, well, if we deal with that issue, now we're reconciled. And that's not entirely wrong. It is true that recon reconciliation can be a destination, a current uh, a point where you guys make peace and your relation to be able to talk and interact is restored. That's a basic definition of reconciliation. 
But for a relationship to be fully reconciled, it's not just one moment or one encounter. Uh, really, you should view it as both a destination, like you get to a point of reconciliation, but reconciliation should also be viewed as a journey. As much as a relationship with someone else is a journey, you walk alongside each other, and there's times you're going to butt heads, there's times you're going to drift away from each other and, and how you view things or how you're operating and have a rift in the relationship, and you're going to come back at multiple points to reconcile, but it's not one and done ever. It's an ongoing uh, task of uh, you got to maintain this, you know, make sure that this relation is, is continually reconciled. And so when we get to chapter 50, we see that that's actually the case. It's not a picture-perfect movie ending here. There is continual struggle with doubt and fear. And such is the case often in our own relationships. So I want us to read from verse uh, 15 and on. Let me set the scene. Chapter one, uh, verses 1 to 14 in chapter 50, we see that uh, Jacob finishes uh, sorry, Joseph finishes bearing his father Jacob. And the passing of his father starts a great insecurity in the hearts of the brothers. Let's read about why. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Then their message came to him. Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning that the reconciliation you offer to us indeed was at one point and it was done forevermore. Thank you, though, Lord, that that reconciliation that you have done through Jesus Christ continues to bear fruit in our lives. It continues to, to bring grace and the experience of mercy into our lives. As we fumble the ball, as we rebel against you, as we fall short of your glory, thank you that that reconciliation that was once and for all continues to show, to show itself in our walk and relation with you. Today, Lord, would you teach us what it means to continue to pursue reconciliation, Father, beyond just a moment of confrontation and resolution, but that it would be a part of our lifestyle, a part of our relationships, that we are in the practice of reconciling. Help us, Father. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our pride. Help us in our distrust. Make us to a people, to be a people that can extend grace readily. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing I want us to see here is that there is an uh, ongoing challenge of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers that has not been resolved. In his brothers' hearts, they feared Joseph still resented them. They never quite got over the fact that they had sold him into slavery and left him for all but dead. And they, to be fair, uh, had never been given an explicit uh, statement of forgiveness from Joseph. At no point did Joseph really lay it out and say, I forgive you fully of all of what you have done. He did say that, hey, it's okay, God meant it for good, but he never to this point told them that, hey, I, don't worry about what you've done in the past, it's all behind us, right? No, no explicit mention of that. And so in their mind, they're, they're not really sure, did he really forgive us? And when their father passes away, they have this nagging question. Did Joseph treat us kindly because he actually cares about us? Or did he treat us kindly for the sake of his father, our father? You see, when that moment of reconciliation comes in Genesis 45, the first thing Joseph asks is about his father. And he's asking about how the father is doing, and he wants to bring the father up immediately. And so from the brother's perspective, a lot of what Joseph really cares about revolves around the father and Benjamin, 
right? They're not sure what does he really think about me. There are times in reconciliation when we're not quite sure about the motives and the incentives of the person that we're having to deal with. We are not sure, are they reconciling just because they have to? Are they reconciling for the sake of someone else? Do they have an ulterior motive? And we're not sure sometimes, is there a grudge even though on the outside reconciliation has been made? Look at the question in verse 15. They, say, they saw that their father was dead and they said, what if Joseph, uh, if Joseph holds a grudge against us? A grudge. Hebrew, that means satam, that's the word there. It means to hate, to oppose oneself to, or get this, I like this term here, to cherish animosity. The word cherish means to to hold on to, to keep something close to you, to protect it even. How many of you know what that feels like when you have a grudge and you feel convicted that you should let this go or that you should deal with it and you can't help but try to hold on to it, to justify it, to hold it close, pull it back to yourself and say, no, but he did this, she did that. It's a really powerful imagery of holding a grudge, cherishing the animosity. Somehow this makes me feel good. Somehow this makes me feel vindicated. Somehow this protects me against that person. Gonna hold on to that grudge. I've been there before where we latch on to resentment and somehow we feel like this is going to give me a, a leg up over this other person, right? And the Lord convicts us, but it's so hard to let go of it. The first thing I want us to realize about the fact that reconciliation is not just a moment, but it is a journey, is that a grudge or the fear of a grudge can hinder the rebuilding of trust in the, in the process of reconciliation a grudge or the fear of a grudge can hinder the rebuilding of trust. Whether that's me holding on to a grudge or whether me fearing that someone has a grudge, it can hinder a deep and trusting relationship from being formed. When I went to college, I roomed with a brother that, uh, a brother that I uh, went to youth group with during high school. And me and this brother started off with a really uh, bad encounter. Well, it wasn't the first time we interacted, but at one point during a retreat, <coughs> I was passing notes back and forth with a friend, female, not a female friend, a, a fellow dude friend, and he was getting annoyed because we were passing it over him, and he like says, you, get, you, sh you should be listening to the sermon, like stop, right? And he finally got annoyed because we ignored him, and he snatched away the note, right? And I instinctively tried to grab it back. And when he withheld it, I got mad and I grabbed his hand. I think I was like ninth grade, so give me some slack here. I yanked his two fingers and I torqued him really bad and ended up spraining those two fingers and they ballooned up later, right? And later he'd come and show me like, he was in pain from it. And it was like, look what you did to my hand. And I remember at that time not really saying much about it. But uh, as the Lord would have it. The two of us went to the same college. He was the only guy from my youth group that went to that college, and we were roommates. In my mind, I never addressed it, and I never knew, does he remember when I messed up his two fingers really bad and never talked to him about it? Well, as it turns out, you know, first semester goes by, we seem to be on decent terms, we seem to be building a relation. There finally came a point in the relation where, you know, we were talking about friendship and being good friends to other people, but it came up in our own friendship. I don't, I don't remember exactly, forgive me, how it came up, but he brought it up again and told me that, you know, this is something that still really bothers him to this day, that it was never resolved, I never said anything about it. Right? I don't think he was actively trying to hold a grudge, but in his mind, this was really keeping us from getting any further in that relationship, so long as that grudge was there. And I got to admit, it made me uncomfortable not knowing what did he really think. And that's a small grudge. Far worse offenses have happened to us, right? When there is a grudge in the picture, it makes it so that we're not entirely sure if we can trust that person and reconcile with that person or if we admit fault, or if we acknowledge what we have done, will that person at some point come back and hang that over our head, right? Will they use that against us at some point? That's what makes it hard to initiate apologizing over what we've done in the past. It doesn't justify withholding forgiveness or withholding an apology, but it makes it very scary. 
You, you need to understand that for Joseph and his brothers, this could mean life or death. They, they didn't view this grudge as, a, as a, a matter of just maybe he'll mistreat us or ignore us or cut us out of his life, but what if he turns around and, and, <coughs> and, and, and really pays us back for our family? What would payback mean? The idea of payback is that it's, it's like an equal return of what was given to you. I'm going to pay you back, right? However much you've given to me, I'm going to give it back to you. Payback. Well, he sold, they sold him into slavery. Payback could look like them getting sold into slavery. Payback could look like their children getting sold into slavery. They don't know what type of harm this grudge could, could become one day. And to them, it wasn't an empty threat. What you think of as an insignificant grudge that you, may, you might hang on to, to that other person that you're holding the grudge against, it is intimidating. That list of grievances or that remembrance of a past uh, offense will make it to them to be as if, you know, if they were to try to embrace, they don't, if they were to try to open, the thumbs up, uh, open themselves up, they don't know when you might come out and hammer them over the head with that thing that they've done in the past. And we all know that we're likely to do that at times when we're in a conflict you know, imagine I had a list of grievances here. This is a worship song sheet, but just imagine and use your imagination for a moment that on here is everything wrong that Alberto has ever done to me. Alberto, I need you to come up here for a moment for this illustration. Would you come on up, brother? <laughs> imagine with me that I I'll put it away later. Uh, how comfortably can Alberto and I really embrace and move forward if all the time walking alongside, I got that knife close by? You may think, why should a grudge be equated with a knife? Folks, that is precisely what Joseph's brothers felt in that moment. The knife can drop at any time, and Joseph can turn us into slaves at any time. That's how heavy the grudge, the threat of a grudge, can be. And so when we think about holding on to a grudge from the past, we need to really understand how, how damaging that is to openness and trust moving forward. I'm of the opinion that we really are not in a position to hold on to a grudge sheet. We're not allowed, we're not given that option as a Christian to say, you know what, I'm not going to bring it out now, but I'm holding on to this. I remember this. Aren't you glad Jesus did not do that for us? Aren't you glad that it says that our sins have been washed white as snow, taken as far as the east from the west, that Jesus will never at any point in time in the relation come and say, John, remember when you did that? Remember when you broke your oath? Remember when you, when you, uh, when you treated your brother or sister this way, he's not going to drag those things up. And let me ask you something. If Jesus did, what kind of relation would you have with him? You would probably have one that was really fearful. I think I'd have a lot of reasons to think that God has no reason to love me. He's got no reason to, to, to give himself and, and pour into me, right? Because there's so many things I've done to fall short. When there is a grudge in the picture, whether us holding the grudge or whether it's the fear of a grudge, it hinders the rebuilding of trust towards reconciliation. We have a term in our day and age called keeping receipts in sports. 
where you keep those receipts, someone saying stuff to you, talking smack to you, doing something to you, I'm keeping these receipts. I remember what you're doing. Folks, I want to challenge us today. If you're someone that holds on to receipts and collects them, sometimes that can be me. I can be petty sometimes. We've got to be in the habit of letting those go. It's going to poison our relationships. It's going to prevent us from experiencing genuine reconciliation. And it's risky. When you put down the knife, you say, I'm letting go of my supposed right to get even and to bring it out against you. But that's not the way Jesus did it. It's not the way that we're told to love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love keeps no records of wrong. No records. No receipts. That's the type of love we've been shown. That's the type of love we've been called to. And I thank the Lord he's not running a tally on me for the ways that I fail. So by the standards of men, if Joseph kept a record of grievances, it would be perhaps likely that he would turn on his brothers and the thought terrified them. Not all of his brothers, it says his brothers, and probably Benjamin wasn't really scared by it, but by the standards of men, the other brothers thought, what if he turns on us? They couldn't appeal to their dead father anymore uh, to help them, but they could say that he appealed for them. And so that's what happens, right? Verse 17 and 18. Uh, he says, it says here that this is their plan, right? Uh, sorry, the end of 16, he says, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. I know what you're all thinking. Did they make it up? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. It's possible. I would venture to guess not. And you would say, why would you give him the benefit of the doubt, John? Well, if you'll remember, they recently discovered or encountered the fact that Joseph is someone that God speaks to. It would be highly risky to play, uh, well, I don't even know the term I can use now. It'd be highly risky for them to pretend to uh, say that, you know, this is what the father said when Joseph in the past has heard from the Lord, right? And I also think it's very possible that Jacob, wise as he is, being in a horrible own brotherly situation with Esau, may have thought about this. You remember there was a point when Jacob thought that Esau was going to kill him, right? And he was terrified by it. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. This was really something that Jacob left for his sons to help cover the grievance. That's not really important, but uh, as far as we can tell, the brother's mode of operation has changed to this point, right? They haven't lied since. Um, I always thought it was weird in the story that they would make this up, but maybe they didn't. So I don't know. <laughs> Lord knows. But they say, <coughs> this is what they claim. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Right there in that one sentence, three words used for sin back to back, right? And so it's a very uh, big elaboration on how terribly they have wronged Joseph, right? That first word sin can mean transgression, rebellion, or crimes. Wrongs has the idea of sins generally. And that last word is straight up evil, right, in the Hebrew, ra'ah. Uh, so in their message, you can see how heavily they understand their shame and their guilt for what they've done. We have done evil against you. And they're so terrified that they send a messenger ahead of time to tell him this. They, they send a messenger to convey a message from their dad. So, so two people removed from hearing it from their own uh, mouth. Now, uh, they do add on their own personal message. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Look at this. They don't say, please forgive the sins of your brothers. They say, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Why? At that point, they did not believe that Joseph, on account of their brotherhood, would forgive them. They hoped, maybe, on account of the fact that, that their family came from a line of servants of God, you know, the fact that Jacob was a servant of God, if you fear God, please spare us. That's how little confidence they had when it came to pleading their life, pleading for mercy before their brother. Folks, it's a really sad place to be when you believe that you've done such transgression and wrong that you really can't go and ask for that forgiveness directly. And it tells us here, when the message came to him, Joseph 
wept. Once again, same reaction as earlier when he finally has to tell them the truth and uh, everything comes out. Joseph weeps and poor, you know, in that moment is just broken. The reason that Joseph weeps here is not because, you know, he's so happy that they've, you know, finally confessed up to what they've done or anything like that. He is brokenhearted because his brothers are still estranged. In a lot of ways, they're just as distant as when he was in Egypt and they were out in the land of Canaan and there was no trust. Is that still where we are, guys? It broke his heart. Folks, second point about reconciliation, not just being a moment of confrontation, but a journey, is that past fears, hurts, and guilts take time to heal. And so we need to be there for each other. We need to walk that journey with each other. A knife wound doesn't go away overnight. But I propose to you that some emotional wounds take far longer than any physical wounds take to go away. And we need to be ready to walk that journey. We can't be ready to give a quick apology and see that someone says, okay, all done, great, let's move on. You need to be ready to help that person through the turmoil as they wrestle with the fact that they have been deeply wounded. We need to be willing to help someone that may be shameful or guilty over what they may have done in the past. If they've been wronged, if you've ever done something to really harm someone, you may continue to carry that weight on your shoulders and it's hard to to feel absolved of what you have done on your own. But there's someone that can help you in that moment, isn't there? The person you've wounded has a means to, like a key, if you will, to really help unlock that guilt and free you from it when forgiveness is extended. Joseph here weeps because he sees that his brothers are still so estranged and probably over the fact that they're still living in such fear. Who wants to see a family member suffering under the weight of such shame and guilt that they can't even call themselves his brother? In the past, it says his brothers cannot speak peaceably to him out of envy. Now they can't speak peaceably to him out of fear, right? What a tragedy in that family. If we really want to see reconciliation run its full course, we need to be able to walk with each other through that process of healing, of hurts and of guilt and of shame and of whatever else may have transpired in the relationship. And so Joseph is grieved. Real reconciliation is not concerned about winners and losers. If this was about winners and losers, Joseph won. Didn't he win? His brothers are fully in the wrong. And now they're begging for mercy, just like that prophecy, that vision given a long time ago. If this were some of us, we might have been rejoicing. Joseph understood the stakes are not about who's right or who's wrong, my way or their way. The stakes are the restoration of a loving relation as God designed that God should get glory from. Folks, would we keep that in mind as we're on that journey of reconciliation It's not about rights or wrongs. It's not about who won out on the argument or who got their way. When one wins, both win when it comes to reconciliation. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Genuine reconciliation is not just in a moment coming to an agreement or apologizing and having the apology received but it's living alongside someone where we continue to lay down our life and building that relation and restoring it. And it's hard to love someone that's grieved us or harmed us or maybe someone that we are fearful holds something over us, but that's part of why it's laying down your life because it's hard to do and it denies the flesh and we say, Lord, that person may not deserve forgiveness or we can say, Lord, that person may not forgive me and may not welcome my efforts to mend the fence, yet I will pursue the reconciliation. It's not just a moment in time, it's a journey. Finally, third and lastly, along this journey of reconciliation, there needs to be a whole lot of affirmation because both sides are insecure. Joseph's brothers then come before him after sending a letter ahead of time to appease him. And once again, they express their remorse. Look at the text here. It says, Uh, His brothers came and they threw themselves down before him and they said, we are your slaves. You know what that means? That means that they fully expected that Joseph was looking to 
enslave them back. You don't volunteer something unless you think that you can, you know, somehow offer it to get out of something worse. That, that's how badly they thought the relation with Joseph was going here. And it shows once again that guiltiness that they carried in their hearts. And in this moment, Joseph is probably the only one in the world that can absolve them of that shame and guilt and fear. Right? No one else could do it. Reconciliation needs reaffirmation for its full effect. Whether you're the one that is offering forgiveness or whether you're the one that is trying to approach to offer an apology. Maybe it gets turned away the first time. Go again. Maybe it gets turned away the second time. Harshly. Go again. In the right leading and timing of the Holy Spirit. Right? And maybe it's the flip side. Maybe the apology doesn't come. Seek to forgive. Seek to love. Reconciliation needs reaffirmation for its full effect. Uh, there was nothing lacking in Genesis 45 in what Joseph did. He did a really good job of saying, you know, God had his purpose for it. He, you know, he didn't say that he was going to press, press any type of charge or pay them back in kind. But Joseph here had to reaffirm that, that first of all, God loves him. He says here in uh, verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You know what that statement says? It says, God is the judge. I'm not looking to collect from you all, right? That's a statement that's saying that I have released any right to be in judgment over you at this moment. God is the judge. And he's not saying I want God to judge you or anything. He's just saying, don't treat me as if I were God. <laughs> that's, that's, not my that's not in my purview. That's not my responsibility. Second, he points them to the greater purpose of God at work to save many lives, right? And the purpose of this is to help the brothers to understand they don't need to just lament all that's happened. They can understand that God was working something good out of this, right? To save lives and to save people. And sometimes we need to take a step back from a botched relationship and a reconciliation that's not going well to remember that the issue is not just who's right or wrong, and it's not just our personal relation, but God may be doing bigger things in the wider part of our lives, like refining us, like teaching someone else around us a certain lesson through what we're going through. And we, not, we need to not forget that God works in such a way where he redeems this broken, really embarrassing parts of our lives that we're ashamed of. But God uses us for his glory, right? And we should take comfort in that. But third, lastly, and so importantly, it tells us here how he ministers to their hearts, right? It says, so then, don't be, <laughs> don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The Hebrew here, reassured, naham, means to comfort, to console. Reassure, if you just take it at the English level, sounds like he's just, remind, just telling them, yeah, you can be certain I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to take advantage of you. I am going to do what I said I was going to do in taking care of you. That's reassurance, right? The English word. The Hebrew word here connotes comfort and consoling. Guys, I'm your brother. I'm not going to sell you into slavery. I know of all people how hard that is. I've been there before. I love you guys. Right? I remember what our Father has done for us. I want to honor his name. I want to remember him. That process of comforting and consoling. Sometimes it's hard to take that extra step because that's pretty it takes an extra measure of humility to do that, to come alongside someone and really absolve them of what, what they may have done and to encourage their hearts. It's a lot easier just to say, you know what, okay, yep, I accept, I accept your apology and let's just move on. But it takes some real thoughtfulness and effort to comfort. I want to encourage you, if you've just reconciled with someone, to make sure that if they're heavy-hearted still, that you don't leave them in that place. Joseph could have left him in that place, but he didn't. It says here that he spoke kindly to them. Your impression might be, well, he was just very gentle, right, in speech to them. That word is actually the Hebrew word for heart, lib, right? It, it, it's, it's more than just speaking nicely. It means speaking deeply, speaking to the heart, getting to the raw emotions and issues and struggles it's that genuine heart-to-heart -heart communication. And this is the hardest thing to do when you have been wounded. 
This is the hardest thing to do when you are still feeling a little bit resentful because that means opening up and that means letting the emotions go. By the way, Joseph is great at that. He weeps a lot. <laughs> and his brothers finally at this time are opening up, right, and saying, we are so terrified of what you might do. Please spare us. Finally, the heart-to-heart -heart talk. And if I can talk to the men for a moment here, this is so, so much harder for the guys. Because number one, we don't always know what we're feeling, right? So sisters, give us a little grace in this area. But a lot of times for the guys, we don't know what we're thinking or feeling. And a lot of times, we have a hard time being honest to ourselves about our own emotions. Listen, men, talking deeply about what you are feeling is not something just for sissies and pansies, right? When you talk deeply about your emotions and you are vulnerable, that means that you have the strength to be able to deal with those things transparently. And you're willing to absorb the burden and cost of feeling vulnerable at that moment, humbled at that moment, to reconcile to someone else, to restore a relation with someone else. That's sacrifice. That's meekness. That's strength, right? But in our minds, we think that the manly man is the stoic man of few words. Doesn't mean, look, you don't have to be a very eloquent type of guy, a talker, to, to speak heart to heart with someone. But it requires for us to be able to sit down and take the effort to ask the Lord to help us to put into words something that will be meaningful and healing to the person that I'm talking with. And to be vulnerable about where I failed and where I'm struggling and where I'm at. Speaking to the heart. And for all the married men there, how many of you have been where I've been before, where I've talked to my wife and I've apologized for an issue, but I can see on her face, I can see on her body language, she's still hurting badly. And in that moment, I have to make a choice. Do I just move on with the day and say we've resolved the immediate crisis, an external issue? Or do I go, do I speak kindly? Do I minister to the heart and speak to the heart and say, how are you feeling? What's on your mind? What can I do to mend the bridge? Husbands, if you don't do that, if I don't do that when our wife or our children are hurting, my wife gets on me all the time with my daughter. You know, when I just set her straight and correct her and she's de 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 dejected, she's like, no, get back over there and talk to her. We are not doing our responsibility as shepherds, right? We have been called to lead not just the intellect, but to lead the heart and the affections for God and for the family. And so also for the sisters, please be patient with the men. And please know that it's not easy for most guys to open up about what they're really feeling in that moment as they try to be vulnerable. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, Paul gives this command to let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice, all things that cause division. That's really important and good. Those things that are blatantly causing a wedge between you and someone else that you care about, right? Maybe you and a coworker, you and a friend, you and your boss, we do gotta deal with those things. But verse 32, it follows up with this. It goes on to say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's not just getting rid of the areas that's contentious and divisive, but there is a tender heartedness and kindness that needs to be brought into the process of reconciliation and restoration. And guys, I know from guy to guy, this is probably even more awkward, right? Because which guy wants to sit down and really hash it out with the emotions? But I propose to you that it is important as much as we want to deny it, we also are emotional guys at times. And we can be petty, and we can hold on to little grudges, and we can get our feelings hurt. It takes me suppressing my pride in those moments to really go after Virginia. Because I got thought about this. Why is it hard to go the extra step to minister to the feelings when I've already dealt with the issue, right, and resolve that? Well, the reason it's hard is because i got to now accept the fact that I've inflicted emotional pain on her, and I've got to own up to it. And that's difficult. But folks, that's why I said reconciliation is more than a moment of confrontation, and you've dealt with the thing that's immediately blocking the relationship. 
You can't just move. It's not just one and done there, but there's an ongoing process of healing, and sometimes it takes time, even months, right? I don't know how long elapsed. I probably could figure out if I had done more study between when that first reconciliation happens and when uh, Jacob passes away, but that was a pretty long time. But Joseph had to be ready to continue to work that reconciliation with his brothers. He didn't need it, actually. He, he was in the right place, by the way. He had no grudge, but his brothers needed it, and he responded the right way when that time came for reconciliation to be made. You know what's really interesting about this passage? If you read in Genesis 32 to 33, you will see a parallel that is uncanny to this passage. There in chapters 32 and 33 of Genesis, you'll read about Jacob, the father who just passed away, and his brother Esau. And listen to what he does. Jacob is fearful of Esau. He sends a uh, gift offering, a peace treaty ahead of time. Much like the brothers sent a letter apologizing ahead of time, a messenger, Jacob sends a whole a caravan of gifts to try to soften Esau's heart. And then uh, when he actually sees Esau, he bows down before him and he says that he's his servant and he calls him Lord. Much like over here, the brothers say, we are your slaves. And on top of that, uh, he, he, uh, <coughs> Jacob literally says to Esau that to see your face is like seeing the face of God. You remember what Joseph said, am I God? And it's like, man, did you all learn this from him? Did he tell you about it and you just ripped his playbook? That's how close these two parallels are. But in the first case, reconciliation never went fully through. You see, Esau invites Jacob and his family to come to Seir and to come and reside with him or at least be shown hospitality. You know what Jacob does? Jacob says, yeah, we'll come. We'll be right behind you. Just, just go on ahead, man. Esau's like, hey, I want to leave you a few of my people. Make sure your caravan's safe. No, no, we, we don't need that. We don't need that. You go ahead. We'll come right after you. And then what he does is he goes right on his way and goes to a different place and avoids associating with Esau. Now, granted, we don't know all the reasons behind it. <laughs> Maybe Jacob had another reason for not wanting to go and stay, to stay with Esau. Uh, maybe he foresaw that putting their two tribes together was going to lead to conflict. Either way, there was never fully reconciliation. But here in Genesis 50, we see that that journey as it progresses, as they actually come and abide and live together and wrestle with each other, they come to that point where the people, the brothers, according to the rest of Genesis 50 and on, they stay in the land with their brothers, something that Jacob and Esau could never do together, right? And later we find how significant that is because they become this nation, right? And this nation that will be God's promised nation eventually to bring about the Messiah, and so it's not a uh, small thing that at the very end of this all, we see that full forgiveness, that kindness and reassurance. And we see that Joseph stays in Egypt along, as it says in verse 22 here, with all his family and their generations stay together. That is a picture of reconciliation walked out as a journey. You keep going in it. You keep dealing with each other. You keep bearing with one another. You keep extending the grace. And it's a bit of a marathon. But for us as Christians, we don't have to go just on our own knowledge that this is what God wants us to do. But we understand that God himself is the one that pours that love into our hearts. I'm going to close with this. There's one movie that talks about quick fix reconciliation that I really like how they did the reconciliation part. It's the remake of Ben-Hur. The end of Ben-Hur, the very, very end, Judah Ben-Hur goes to his brother. Sorry for the spoiler. But he approaches him and his brother, uh, adopted brother, sorry, is raging mad because he's been uh, maimed badly in the chariot uh, competition that they had and they've had to amputate his leg. And his brother says, as long as I live, I'll never forgive you. And if I have to crawl after you, crawl after you, I will come after you. And until I kill you, I will come after you, essentially. There will never, ever be reconciliation between us, right? And the brother says, no, no more, no more blood, no more killing. I cannot fight you any longer. And he gets up to him and he embraces him. In that moment, his brother-in-law lunges at him with the sword. And you don't know in that moment, is he going to kill Judah? 
But in that moment, they embrace, and his brother breaks down crying. The adopted brother breaks down crying, and both of them are weeping tears. That picture, right, of what Jacob and Esau did when they saw each other, they embraced, and they're weeping over each other. It shows that picture. And yes, it was, you know, all in two and a half hours, so it's another example of quick fix reconciliation. Doesn't work that way. At the very end, it shows them happily racing again on horses, just like in the intro. Doesn't always look that clean and easy in life, but this is what they got right. The reason Judah can go to his adopted brother and give the forgiveness is that he encounters Jesus along the way and he hears this message of forgiveness and he thinks it's worthless and he scoffs and says, why would anyone want to follow after that? And he watches Jesus as he gets you know, betrayed and tortured and then crucified and he sees Jesus asking for that forgiveness for the people that are harming him. And this, that moment when Jesus is on the cross comes after he gets his revenge against his brother, right? And he realizes how broken, what a wrathful, empty vessel he's become. And he realizes how broken he is. He reasons he has no reason to hold on to vengeance, right? And there's this very powerful moment where he finally has this stone that he's gripping onto, I think to the point of like there's blood coming out. He finally drops the stone, right? And it's that picture of letting go of the grudge, letting go of vengeance. And I thought it was well done because that is our story, Christians. When we take the Lord's Supper in communion, it is a reminder of what Christ has done to love us, the extent that he went through to love us, the fact that day after day we abide and we are under his love and his grace. That's what we need to hold on to, not a quick fix solution to our uh, you know, relational issues, but to remember that Jesus continues to bear with us and to abide in us and he will carry that on to the day we are presented in glory face to face and declared altogether righteous. And we live with the confidence that that will be the case as Christians because of what he has done. I want to ask you, is there a list that you hang on to of grievances or grudges? Is there something that you're not trying to hang on to and you want to let it go, but you just can't? Can I invite you to ask the Lord to carry that away? to minister to your heart. We can have a moment of response here, and I want you to now bow your heads, every head bowed, if you'll dim the lights. I want to give you a moment here to respond. If in your life there is something that you are still holding on to as a grudge that you feel like must be addressed before you can receive an olive branch, if there's something you are holding on to that keeps you from forgiving another, I want to invite you to lay that down at the cross. Bring it to that place where our sins and guilt and rebellion were put away. And don't hold on to something that God has not held against us. It's scary. It's hard to let go of. But I invite you to release it so that you might, in a greater way, encounter the way that you have been freed and released from judgment. When my sister did that for me after hearing a sermon, I remember just feeling this joy, knowing that the things of the past she would not count against me. To this day, she's never brought them up again. Our relation is not the same as what it was. If you're here today and you're in the midst of conflict, unresolved, Reconciliation. Maybe you're here in a botched reconciliation that only lasted for a time. I want you to come before the Lord and ask him to heal your heart in disappointment. If there's a family member, maybe an in-law, whoever it might be, if there's a friend that you used to talk to and the times you've tried to mend the fences didn't work out, would you ask the Lord to show you what's the best thing to do? I'm not saying it's to go and initiate, but I ask you to seek of the Lord. Lord, how do I glorify you in that relation that's not yet been mended? I'm going to invite you, if you're someone that has hurt someone else and you've not really gone to them and really opened up and shared your guilt, the weight of your sin, because it is scary and it's shameful. 
I want you to ask the Lord to give you strength to address areas where we have been negligent, where we have withheld giving someone else the blessing of, of feeling like their, their hurt has been addressed and that, that someone cares that you care enough to share it with them. Ask the Lord to help you if you're prideful and you can't let it go. You can't help give, you can't give that satisfaction to that other person. You feel like the power dynamics might get skewed. You feel like they might hang it over your head. Would you believe, oh Christian, that the one who will judge you will not hold it over your head as you have confessed it and done your part to reconcile? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for that truth. Thank you, Lord, that there is no sin so grievous, Lord, that you would continue to hold it against us or bring it back out. Father, thank you that in the gospel we, we know that Jesus Christ went to the cross for us so that we would not have to stand in judgment and be accountable for our sins. But you, O oh Lord, have poured out the transgressions and iniquities of the world upon to the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He has been unjustly treated and maligned so that we would escape your wrath. And Father, all you do is invite us to take hold of that grace. You invite us to turn from our old ways and entrust our life to you. You don't demand that we hit a certain place of sanctification. Oh, Father, help us to live in that grace. Free us from any legalism. Free us from any self-righteousness. Free us from feeling entitled. Free us from wanting to hold on to our unrighteousness. If you're here today, you've heard this message of grace and you've never made that decision to trust in Jesus as your Lord, to surrender your life, to place your full hope in him on that day of judgment, that he would cover your sin. I invite you to do that here and now. Father, over this congregation, Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts and help us to endure this race, this marathon of life, filled with relationships, filled with hurt and betrayal, filled with the need to bear with one another. Help us not to treat reconciliation just as this one-time encounter, but truly to view it as a journey of walking with you and learning to show your love even as we are loved. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.